The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. A very good afternoon to you. It is the 13th of March. You're listening to Confidential Brief live on Chai FM 101.9 FM in Johannesburg and streaming worldwide on chaifm.com. Well, the new cabinet has been announced and sadly, our police ministry remains exactly the same. We have cats in a hat at the very top of the, of the podium as the minister of police, Mr. Becky Chele, and we have Castle Matale as the deputy minister of police. Why am I disappointed? Well, I'm disappointed because they are decision makers in terms of legislation, in terms of the way forward, in terms of the vision of the police. They work together with their super DG, who's the commissioner of police, in determining policy. But most important, they determine the way in which the budget is spent. And if you've been listening to the show recently, I've been going on about how the budget is incorrectly distributed amongst the South African police service. Why do I say incorrectly distributed? Well, let me explain to you why. It is one of the biggest budgets in South Africa. The last financial year was a hundred billion rand allocated to the police. Of that hundred billion rand, two percent is allocated to the Hawks. Just two percent of the entire budget. Now the Hawks are the the Directorate for Priority Crime Investigation. In other words, the government finds it fit that only 2% of the budget gets allocated to the directorate that is responsible for priority crime investigation. The head of that unit, General Labia himself, has said that he has only 49% of his posts filled. There are 51% vacant posts, but he doesn't have budget to fill them. That would mean he would need to double his budget. His budget's currently two billion rand, he would need 4 billion rand. Conversely, whereas the Hawks only receive 2% of the police budget, the VIP protection services receive 3% of the police budget. This cannot be right. We need to discuss the way forward and we need to urgently see how funds are allocated and why they are allocated in the manner in which they do. Coming up in a few minutes, I'm chatting to Dominique Stapelberg and Stompy Ferreira, two seasoned investigators. And although Dominique will not like me to say this, they are both veterans in the game. We'll be chatting to them more about it after this. I'd like to remind you, of course, that Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing, and also remind you the views expressed on the show aren't necessarily those of Chai FM. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. You're listening to Confidential Brief, proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs. Um, having a chat in, in studio while we were taking that break with Dominique and with um, Stompy, chatting about how everything has become digitized and so is fraud. And it will be something we touch on a little bit later in the show. Dominique, Stompy, welcome to Chai FM. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you very much to you and your listeners. Appreciate the opportunity. Stompy, you and I have got a lot to chat about. But before we get there, Dominique, um, for purposes of transparency, Stompy's your dad. And you've been in this game since you were a school kid. So yeah. how did you get into investigations apart from your dad? Did he force you into it? Was it the only way you could get pocket money? Well, in the beginning, yes. And then eventually wanting to grow up in it, 
going further in it, and he didn't want at all. You're female, men's will, nothing. So family drama, everything, and we got there. So Stompy, it's an interesting, it's an interesting dilemma. You you've grown up in this industry. You've worked from military intelligence coming across in 2001 to the private sector. It's a it's a huge change. The skill set change is the same. And the objective to a large extent stays the same. But you're no longer working for a boss. You're now working for yourself and you're working to get your client's closure. What was it like for you coming out of the military into the private sector? To be honest, it was a, it was a major uh, mind shift that you had to do. Because as you rightfully said, you're working for a boss. Now you're your own boss and you've got to do your own thing. So whatever you do, is your responsibility. You make a boo-boo about it, it's your responsibility, you got to sort it out. The challenge was for the first year, thereafter it became joy, and it was becoming a real situation of a passion. And when you've got a passion about something, it's not work anymore. So we're fortunate enough that we, both of us, Dominique and myself, have the passion for this job and whatever we do. And therefore we don't work, we enjoy ourselves. Now, you're a surveillance specialist in military intelligence, and you brought across that skill set into the private investigation industry. Well, while we were chatting last week at, at the IAFCI conference, um, you gave a presentation on surveillance, and I quickly realized that surveillance is, is not what people think it is today. Everybody seems reliant on the fact that because of cell phone technology, because of CCTV technology, etc., there isn't really a need for old-fashioned surveillance. But Glenda reminded me of a case of a major um, service provider in the mobile phone industry that a couple of years ago had an issue with regards to corruption within their ranks. And they couldn't follow the money. They couldn't see the meetings taking place because these people realized that from a technological perspective, they could be monitored. So they engaged the services of a company such as yourselves, and they were able to successfully get footage of these people meeting without their phones, as well as deposits being made into bank accounts via ATMs into accounts that they didn't know. And they were able to later, through a subpoena, find out whose accounts money was paid into. Does that at least make you feel justified in the in the fact that surveillance is still such a critical component in investigations. Chad, if you look at the the old school surveillance and you compare it with where we are standing today, there's a lot of advantages in doing the surveillance. Advantages to the terms that whatever you put down there, technical and even with the drone situation, you don't hear and see everything. So when you do physical surveillance like we do it, <clears throat> in terms of the mobile surveillance as well as the probing, which is a static surveillance, you'll find, I want to say, about 100% more detail and intelligence and information in regards to that because you're on the foot, you're there right next to your, let's call him a perp, and at the end of the day, you can see and hear everything that he does. And as you rightfully said, in terms of the people with their cell phones, a lot of the suspects will leave his cell phone at his office and just drive out. He hasn't got a company vehicle, so there's no tracking on it. Therefore, what is your other option? You've only got one option, and that is to continue with mobile surveillance. Mobile surveillance then gives you everything in terms of the routine, as from where he starts driving right down. <coughs> My apologies. As I've said in, in the uh, briefing that I did as well at the AFKI uh, situation, is that you can do whatever you want. Technology is not the alpha and omega. You have to have the human factor. 
in com- combination with your technology at the end of the day. The teams no- normally consist of a minimum of two to three people, but we've had operations where we had 62 cars on one wow. operation, which was astonishing. And, and managing those 62 vehicles at one stage is a dilemma if you can't keep your cool and do not have the right actions to be taken at the right time. What you've touched on here is very important for me because I don't think people realize this. When I opened the show, I mentioned that we moved into a digital space. A lot of crime is occurring in the cyber world. But are we finding criminals are going back to the old days where they know that because of this digital footprint that they are leaving, they need to rather do dead drops, they need to do things in writing or meet people privately without phones and without technology? Indeed. If you look at the, the situation with the financial institutions, for instance, where their own personnel might be involved, they know precisely what the organization can and cannot do. So therefore, when transactions take place, a lot of cash has been handed over. And not just in normal briefcases as in the olden days. Now in a checker's bag or a Woolies bag uh, that's been handed over. At the end of the day, if you were... Uh, just going for the technology side of it and thinking that you're going to pass on that and use that as you offer a mecha, you're going to miss the boat, unfortunately so. So you have to go this expense with the surveillance oaks where they can physically see, observe, and record that transaction being taken place. We have what, we've had one incident specifically where an amount of 12.5 million rand was handed over in cash between two individuals for a specific transaction which if it was done via any banking institution or even the Hawala system, it would be traceable at the end of the day. So we trace that cash back to that individual. And he then, unfortunately for him, got arrested that same night at his house. So can I ask you this? Is there still a need for people to be trained in surveillance? Because when I look at you and I, coming from the background that we have, and we're going to be chatting to Dominique about the new generation a little bit later in the show, but... Is there still a need for people to be trained? Are there enough people that have been trained in surveillance? Because it looks to me as if people have become far more dependent on digital investigation rather than actual on the boots on the ground investigation. The technical side of it forms a very great part of your surveillance. But that can be a background to going over onto the foot and, as you say, boots on the ground situation. The interesting part is that if you look at the training requirements that the people want for their people to be trained, and there's a lot of big corporates that has their own internal surveillance units as well that does specifically that boots on the ground because if you look at a medical claim, for example, there is no way that you're going to prove a medical claim by means of any financial institution and or uh, technical investigation. So what do you have to do? Typically, we've had an advocate that we had to investigate. His uh, ruling was that he cannot write. He was in an accident. He cannot write anymore. Therefore, we went out into the technical side of it. And at the end of the day, we found him playing golf, tennis, cricket, the whole works. So there he was floored. Immediately, a decision was made at the end of the day. Yes, you're going to either pay back or we're going to charge you for fraud. We're chatting today to two investigation veterans, although Dominique doesn't want to be called an investigation veteran. She's, she wants to bring the younger generation in. And when we come back, we're going to be chatting just that. What do we do to bring the younger generation into the investigation field? You're listening to Confidential Brief. 
Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. You're listening to Confidential Brief. My name is Chad Thomas. In conversation with me today, Stompy Ferreira, a true veteran of the investigation industry, a surveillance specialist, and his daughter, who by choice... I'm not sure, followed him into the industry, Dominique Stapelberg. Dominique, was it by choice? Yes. Do you enjoy the industry? It's a hobby. It's supposed to be a hobby. Then it's not work at all. But you make money from it? Depends. You help people with closure? Yeah. That's the important part for us. That's the best payment you can get. That's very true. So let's talk about... The International Association of Financial Crime Investigators. I heard Stompy refer to it by its acronym earlier, which is? AFKI. AFKI. So mm. AFKI, it's a, it's a organization that is for international financial crime investigators. You're the secretary. What is it like in South Africa in terms of the growth of such an organization? But more importantly, are we seeing a new generation that are wanting to get involved in this industry? At this stage, we're struggling. The youngsters, they don't understand totally what is this organization. So they don't want to get involved in it. And especially we need to realize, like you said, you veterans, you are going to step down at this stage. You're all coming to age, everything. So the youngsters are there to take over. But it's getting involved in these organizations that we need. So tell us about this organization. So it's a non-profit organization. It's international. And then we've got the Western Cape and then we've got the Gauteng chapter. From financial departments, we're now into logistics as well, private investigators, everyone getting involved. Each one is there to help. We've got monthly meetings where we meet up, give the newest trends what's happening in logistics, financial departments, credit card fraud, all of those. Cybercrime is becoming a huge issue at this stage as well. Meet around, everyone get together, networking, great opportunity for networking, building up that context, especially like for the younger generation. How many youngers have contacts in financial departments, in law enforcement? Building up those contacts, going from there. Do we, th- do we see youngsters wanting to be involved? Because I- I'm finding it strange. Let me tell you why I find this industry strange. In the, the mid-1990s, security overtook mining to become the biggest employer in the country. And they supplemented the boots on the ground. They replaced in a lot of areas the police patrols. They responded to crimes that were in progress. With that in mind, one would think that with this huge amount of crime that's taking place, if one looks at the UK, 40% of all reported crime last year was fraud-related. South Africa, we have a massive amount of frauds that are reported. So one would expect to see an equal growth in the private investigation sector. We're not seeing that. How come? It sounds rude to say it, but not everyone wants to work in the private sector. For some of them, it's easier working for a company, being overseen by a boss, because they're too scared to make the calls. So, Stompia, a question's coming from a listener here. It says, why don't the Hawks allow private investigators and skilled volunteers to assist, for example, following a money trail to expedite an investigation? And what exactly is a public-private partnership of which you've spoken? I'm going to handle the public-private partnership just now. I want to ask you, the listener wants to know, why don't the Hawks allow private investigators? Is that the case, or do they allow private investigators to assist them? Chad, is a very difficult question because there's two sides of this coin at the end of the day. 
the one side of the coin is that you indeed have the cooperation and the request from different divisions and different state uh, organs of state that, that gets involved in this and want us to do the work. But then you've got the, I want to call it and respectfully towards everybody else, the jealousy factor. Why should we get an external party to do our work? And I want to go back to your, to your statement earlier that the Hawks, for instance, have got a 2% of the budget, while the rest of the organizations has got a lot of money. The Hawks can and do sometimes request the assistance from outside, and we've been involved in a couple of issues regarding such operations. But from our side, at the end of the day, remember we are a business, so we cannot do all these things for free, meaning that the Hawks must then write a project, to just take them as an example, write a project, and then from that project go it out. If I can take you back to the previous uh, organization before the Hawks, the Director of Special Operations, DSO, I was involved with the DSO as a civilian member, civilian investigator, for six years. And where did that money come from? It came from the state. They subsidized me to do a certain amount of work. So I think the jealousy factor needs to be addressed. And, and we need to, as private investigators, also understand that we are not there to do the work of the SAPS, but rather to assist the SAPS to deliver a better product, number one, and get to the prosecution side in expediting such. That's our responsibility from a civilian side of it. So we do get uh, requests from different organizations, different divisions, on a continual basis. You've answered a lot of that question there. Allow me to, to expand on the public-private partnerships. When it comes to investigations in South Africa, you made specific mention when you used to subcontract to the Scorpions, and the Scorpions would make use of your expertise at the DSO. They had budgets. What we're now seeing is that there isn't budget. So the Hawks, if they want our assistance as investigators, they can't necessarily pay us for our time. We've been paid up until a point by clients to present a product that we believe is prosecutable by the state. The state then lags, and if they need money thread analysis, etc., they are reliant on their own internal mechanisms, and we now know that there's budget constraints. So the public-private partnerships that exist, that you mentioned where you get called upon or we get called upon or Dominique gets called upon, those are informal. They're not formalized, and we need to find a way to formalize them. Indeed, and I think the the direction that you you took with the uh, initiative to convey to the states, the organs of state, that this is what we want to assist you with, was a brilliant initiative, and it can only go better and better in future. We have seen in the last five years, for instance, that the assistance required by the organisations is more and more. I don't want to say thrown out, but handed over to the civilian side. And once again, as you say, until the prosecution happens at the end of the day. We are fortunate enough as our company that we have clients that are still willing to pay during the prosecution phase for that. That makes it a lot easier than for the um, the Hawks, the CIG people, whoever is involved, to then formalize and finalize that at the end of the day. So, Dominique, we're hearing about the frustration of money. 
when one looks at the investigating directorate, it was established to investigate everything that came out of the Zondo Commission. Now, if I had to look at that unit, I would look at a return on investment. They are able to go out there and bring back the money that's been stolen. Yet in their first year of operation, they were only given a hundred million, not billion, a hundred million in which to operate. And now in their third year of operation, they've got 350 million rand. Now, this to me seems as if the state could be turning the taps off so that they've got all the legislation in place. They've got all the bells and whistles of the units that are in place. But if they're not correctly funded, they can't fund themselves, let alone the private industry that's there to assist them. So what do we do? So with AFKI as well, a benefit is you get a sponsorship where a member is sponsoring someone of law enforcement to become a member, whereby that member doesn't pay any monthly fees, no yearly fees, nothing. But he is there on all the seminars, the conferences, the monthly meetings. He needs assistance. Anyone of AFKI can help him. Well, that's incredible. So what you're telling me now is that there can be skills transfer from the private sector to the public sector without expecting any financial compensation from the state. Yes. And how? It's a buddy system, basically, how it works. You take Stompy as your buddy, you sponsor him, and he's part of AFKI. But this is an incredible thing, and I must be honest with you, coming to your conference, listening to you chat, I didn't actually know that the buddy system existed. And off the top of my head, I know many members that would jump at the opportunity. When I speak about members, I'm speaking about members of state law enforcement that that are really they they sponges. They want to suck up as much information as they possibly can because there hasn't been a skill transfer necessarily to these detectors that have been appointed into these posts. Everybody assumes that a Hawks member has specialized training. More often than not, we're finding that the detectives that have been promoted that may not have that specialized training, perhaps it was intended at some stage or another, but they're so bogged down with work they don't get that opportunity. And this sounds like the perfect opportunity. Anyone can join from law enforcement. Come to one of the monthly meetings, see what it's about, see the networking that you can get, the benefit that you can get out of it, and we all can work together to get those people into AFKI as a buddy system. So, Stompy, from your perspective, why do you think there's been this lack of skill transfer that we're sitting with members that have an appetite to investigate, to get a matter prosecutable, but they don't necessarily have the knowledge of the system or the experience? Chad, I think once again we're going back to the flip side of the coin that I spoke about earlier, where you get the willing and you get the unwilling. Now, the unwilling, unfortunately, is one of those. You have... If you've got that attitude of unwillingness to not learn and educate yourself further, you will not join an organization like AFKI or the ACFE or IFCP or UMSRA or any one of those. But those opportunities are there. But it needs willingness to learn. And we all need to understand that we learn until the day we rest. And the day that you, that you decide that I've learned enough now, you haven't laid your head down yet. Then you should rather lay your head down and say, I'm finished. So we, from a private sector, are more than willing to share whatever abilities we have. We are more than willing to share the knowledge that we have. And as you rightfully said, the, the constraints in terms of budget is always there. We've had a situation a while ago where we invited certain members, and we were just told that we're not going to get a budget to do that. 
if you look at, for instance, the surveillance training, there's we were two very senior members of surveillance training that was on the AFKI Association, and both of us got to know each other in 1989 already, that we got to know that they were on the one side of the fence or we were on the other side of the fence, both state organizations, and we never interacted until we forced it from bottom line upwards. So I think that we we need to get those willing people to start requesting and insisting on training by the private sector as well. To give an example, we were on numerous occasions, we were requested and we did it, where we physically presented surveillance training, intelligence training and undercover training for African countries that was willing to put the money out there to educate their people. So my concern is if an African country, which has got a much smaller fiscus than ourselves, is willing to do it, why can we not do it in South Africa? And I want to come back to the willingness to learn situation. Is it possible that the taps get turned off so that people can't be capacitated and people can't finalize investigations? Because we're seeing cases that are sometimes five years old, then suddenly state capture dockets took preference, then tender documents took preference, then COVID documents took preference, plus the two years added on from COVID when no new cases were enrolled. So in some instances, cases can be seven years waiting before they get finalized. Chad, the the basic answer to that is going to be the willingness to prosecute, unfortunately. We've had uh, fraud cases specifically, and I can refer you to a case that 4.8 million rand, which we initiated in 2020, and we were already gone for prosecution on the 24th and 25th of November last year. So it can be done, but once again it comes back to willingness and the ability and, or again, willingness to understand that the private sector is there to under I don't want to say understand, but but to to assist, compliment, <clears throat> and compliment whatever the organs of state are doing at the end of the day. I want to talk about that four point <clears throat> eight million case just before we go to break. Did you assist right up until prosecution? Was it a matter that was handled by SAPS detectives or the Hawks? And in terms of recovery, was the state successful, or is the case still still continuing? All right, so, so what happened with that specific case, <clears throat> we were supposed to go for prosecution and final um, settlement of, of jail time on the 24th and 25th. So the defense at the end of the day decided, no, they're going to change legal representation again. Old trick. So old trick, the old Stalingrad situation that they had. But we hope now at this stage for final prosecution and, and setting down of, of sentence by mid-June this year. The, the, the prosecution side from, from the, uh, orcs as well as the prosecution, the NPA itself was brilliant. We, we started the case right out from the beginning. We got all the documentation ready. We got all the affidavits, the A1s, the whole works that we got together. And we built the case up to that stage where it was just for that individual that they had to do the investigation from the orc side. Take it to court, carry on with it. And that was brilliant. That was one of those things where this oak was appreciative of what we have done thus far to assist him 
and making his job lighter at the end of the day. So we're doing a lot of that. Have we recovered money? Yes. Uh, unfortunately for the two perpetrators that was involved in it, they've lost their old pension. We took that on Article 36, and we recovered $2.4 million on that already. But after final prosecution and lay down of sentence, we will be going to the AFU, which has been initiated, to take further and take that back everything we can to recover the full $4.8 million, and obviously and also the cost that we incurred as investigators on behalf of our client. I hope we get to see more of these cases because the backlog is getting bigger and bigger and the hope of recovering becomes less and less the more time that uh, is spent. When one looks at the 205s, there's a, there's a, there's a cutoff in the amount of years that the banks can actually go back. And sometimes the 205s are delayed and del- we all know about justice delayed is justice denied. So yeah, that is a, that is a great example. I'm going to chat to you about that afterwards because I want to see what made that case move so much quicker than all these other cases and the backlogs that we're experiencing. When we come back, we're going to talk to more about uh, getting involved with the IAFCI. Um, Dominique will be giving the acronym because I tend to get it wrong because it's a silent I. Just a reminder, you're listening to Confidential Brief live on 101.9 FM. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. You're know, listening to Confidential Brief, proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs. Today I'm chatting to Dominique Stapelberg and Stompy Ferreira about the role of PIs. And it's an ongoing conversation we've been having the last couple of months, specifically because we're seeing that the state is battling with the sheer number of cases and the fact that they can't get around to investigating each and every case. Dominique, we'd speak about more police on the ground. Now, the number of actual police on the ground has dropped surprisingly in the last two decades by about 20, 30,000. I think we're down to about 180,000 active members at the moment. And we see recruitment taking place by the minister where he says within a year he'll put 10,000 more members on the ground. Now, this is visible policing. In the last five years, we've lost a 1,000 and you like the term veteran detectives from the police, experienced detectives. They haven't been replaced by skilled members. So we have a very important role to play as the private industry. Now, you've spoken about the fact that perhaps people aren't really attracted to private investigation because it's not as sexy as the state counterparts. We don't really have door-kicking powers. What do we do to change the perception that there really can be a partnership with state law enforcement, but that the expertise sits in the private sector and we need to be able to assist our public sector counterparts? I think if you look at it, like Stompy that's out now in the private sector, you as well, that's abilities that you're able to give us more the younger generation as well so that everyone sees. It's not this Hollywood movie that you see, CSI Las Vegas. It's not the same. We need to get underground, see what it physically is, get that knowledge back into society. Stoppy, do you think people may be turned down by the fact that they the registration of a private investigation is done through CIRA? 
So a private investigations company and a private investigator is done through CIRA rather than through an organization specifically for private investigators. And people feel, you mentioned ego earlier, that perhaps being registered with CIRA isn't as glamorous as they'd like, like it to be because they then regard it as a security service provider. Chad, I would, on the one hand, I would agree that there is an issue with regards to the CIRA registrations, but I think the people at the end of the day on the outside in the public sector, uh, private sector as we are, do not realize that CIRA is actually the backbone of the security industry. And belonging to CIRA is a positive, as is belonging to an AFKI and the other organizations as well. Because once again, via those processes and all those organizations, you have a certain amount of backup, which is statutory law at the end of the day. And in addition to that, you get to know so much more people in specific fields that you might not be a specialist. I want to use the cyber, cyber units, for instance, that we outsource from our side. No one PI company, and, and I actually hate to use the word PI because there's always a stigma to it, so I rather prefer to forensic investigators. If you join CIRA and you join all these other organizations, you've got the legal standing, number one, and you've got this interaction with public uh, public uh, organizations as well as the financial institutions. All of them is involved in these organizations. And the fact that CIRA regulates the business makes it so much easier. And if you're not compliant, they close your doors. So it avoids the fly-by-night, and respectfully, the fly-by-night that comes back from Afghanistan and Iran and says, right, I'm now going to start a, a PI company, comes in, does his job, three months later he goes back to Iran, Iraq, whatever, and then client comes back to us again and say, but hang on a second, I need someone to start with this again. And it's a restart from the beginning. So at the end of the day, if you're not CIRA registered, there's a loophole for yourself that you have created, nobody else, because CIRA is open for everybody. Sometimes there's an issue in terms of the processes, but you can get that sorted out. There's always a means to do things. But being part of CIRA, being part of all these organizations, is to our personal benefit, but it is also to the, to the benefit of the organizations that we work with, like the Orcs, like the normal SAPS, the charge office, which everybody says is a heck of a frustration. You know what? Go in with the right attitude. You'll get a different attitude, not an arrogant attitude from them. So it all depends on how you approach the people as well. Dominique, in closing, AFKI, did yes, I say it right? 100%. So it's a silent I at the beginning. CIRA, compulsory, criminal offense if you're not registered with CIRA. AFKI, self-governing, self-regulatory, something where there is a skill transfer. There's a massive difference between the two, and I wish people would understand this. The one we have to be members of because they regulate us, but they also give us the law that enables us to investigate. But an organization such as AFCA, of which you secretary, gives us the skill set and the networking opportunity. How do people join? So they can either go, I think you'll post a link as well, maybe on your website, and it's just Google AFCA and you join. You submit all of your documents that's needed. They go through it and International comes back to the South African chapter and they let us know. And then we just phone you. And then 
in terms of getting together, we saw that there was the annual seminar last week with some very um, hard-hitting um, presentations that were made from all aspects of investigation. But that's per annum. What happens on a month-to-month basis? So every last Thursday of the month, we get together at different venues. This month we're looking now at one of the financial departments. Get together there. That's the whole networking. We sit, we talk about the newest trends. You give the newest stats from your department. Stompy gives it from a surveillance side. What does he pick up as the newest trend? Everyone gets together for a nice drink afterwards. A network. There's so, a, sorry, there's a WhatsApp group as well. So should you need any information, you just send on the WhatsApp group, I need information for handwriting analysis being done or anything, and someone will respond on it immediately. So Stompy, it comes down to what you and I were good at. It was networking because as an intelligence handler, you had to find a source, make that source comfortable, and keep that source as a valuable um, conduit of information. This is something very similar. You're creating a network of people that are sharing information that can help make investigations that much easier. Indeed. And, and the ability within, Dominica's now referred to the WhatsApp group, it is literally like in seconds. You ask for someone that can do this or you need a contact at ABC. Within seconds, someone will answer you. And they will, if there's nobody on the group that will answer you on that, they will come back to you and say, I will find you someone. Which gives us, as, as investigators on the outside, gives us that ability at the end of the day that we can go back to our organs of state as well and say, but here's a contact that you can use at that place or that premises to get and obtain the information that you want. In such an extent that this organization and people that's on the groups can even assist you in expediting a 205, which normally with, with the SAPS would take up to six to nine months. We can help expedite it up to seven days. Stompy Ferreira, thank you so much for joining us today. Your expertise is appreciated, and you answered the questions in such a way that I appreciate what I learned today because it just shows that there is a wealth of information that still rests with the veterans. Jared, indeed, uh, as you said, with the veterans and the youngsters are coming up, and I must congratulate her for coming up for AFKI as well. Um, and thank you to you and Kai uh, FM. We really do appreciate the opportunity. Dominique, what you discussed today, especially the buddy system, it's something I've taken to heart. I want to make it my personal mission now that I know about it, and I know you're going to be sending me more information afterwards. But what I want to do is, is I want to chat to the members on the ground as well as the decision makers at the top and see whether we can formalize this relationship, identify private sector investigators that are willing to partner on this buddy system with their public sector counterparts. So thank you so much for that. It's a pleasure. and. I'm looking forward to all of your employees joining. <laughs> well, I can guarantee you Carl and Angelique would like to, to join an organization such as this. And they're in the same age group as you, which just shows that there is new blood coming in. Not as fast as we'd like, but it is coming in. The podcast for today's live show will be downloaded and uh, available on the Chai FM website in about two hours or so. 
If you enjoyed today's conversation or want to learn anything more about the International Association of Financial Crime Investigators or about Stompy Ferreira or Dominic Stapelberg, you can visit us at Confidential Brief Radio Show on Facebook. We'll be uploading all the links. Next week, we're chatting about a scourge, and that is something that people don't realize is still happening, and that is modern human slavery and how this organized crime is facilitating illicit money flows throughout the world through money laundering. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Chad Thomas, and keep them peeled.